at the moment, it's the sort of Wild West out there. Anybody can go out and develop AI tools and potentially deploy them directly to pet owners. And if they're coming into our practice, we need to have some framework and some frame of reference to be able to determine how we integrate those into our clinical decision-making in a way that actually benefits patient outcomes. So, yeah, I think we should all really engage with this from beginning to end. Welcome to this third Vet Times B6 Live event, the second to be held here at SPIVS Congress. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Alistair Webb, Senior Reporter for Vet Times, and if you've seen my face before, I can only apologise. The session this afternoon is on AI threats and opportunities in the veterinary world. Thankfully, you don't have to listen to me rabbiting on about that. We have an eminent panel here who will be joining me on the stage in just a moment. Sue Patterson, our CVS President. Liz Barton, VetCT Head of Communications. Tom Jenkins, PetSAP Co-Founder and Chief Executive. PJ Noble, University of Liverpool and part of the Savsnet Project. Jack Peplow, Founder of Veterinary IT Services. And Ollie Viner, Chief Veterinary Technological Officer for HelloVet. You would please join me on the stage. Let's make a start. AI has become one of those buzz terms that seemingly everybody uses, but how much do we really know about it? I want to start our conversation this afternoon by considering specifically what we mean by AI in veterinary practice. So who's going to start me on that? Tom Jenkins. Okay. I think artificial intelligence, actually, someone said this about porn, didn't they? In terms of defined porn, I know what it is when I see it. I think it's kind of more like that. You would think of it as any task that uses a computer to achieve something formally achieved using human intelligence. But then it's like, well, a calculator kind of does that, but maybe it's without inputs and a calculator can't learn. So I think that's a good rough definition, is doing a complicated task that formally would have required human intelligence and being able to be adaptable using at least a very complex algorithm. Liz Barton. Yeah, so it's, it's taking data inputs... Um, and it's computationally analysing those to give outputs based on likely probabilities. Um, So to me, it's um, as good as the data we put into it and the outputs we ask it to deliver. Um, And actually defining what those are is a lot more complex than you would think and the bit that happens in the middle is also infinitely more complex Um, and even the people that work in this field 24-7 as researchers don't fully understand what goes on so there is a huge sort of black box element in the middle Um, but as much as we can control what goes in and what we want it to do uh, to come out the other end um, you know in many ways it can enhance what we do because it will compute that in a way that is beyond you know, what our human intelligence can do, it'll compute that in a different way. So it sees, but not as we see. So in that way, it can be a hugely powerful augmentation tool. Ollie Viner. I don't know now whether to start talking about artificial insemination yeah. first, you know, when we go. But um, no, I, I, I think, you know, there's been a, a great kind of description, you know, already. But 
we've had kind of versions of AI since we've had kind of computers, depending on how you kind of define it. Um, what we've seen recently, I think what a lot of people think about AI now are like the large language models that we've seen. So that's the, the chat GPTs um, that we've, we kind of encounter. And, and those are a slightly different version of these kind of artificial neural networks. Yeah. The older versions were a little bit more, um, a little bit less the black boxes that Liz was talking about. And now we kind of took this leap in 2017 where, where we developed this new type of artificial intelligence using these things called transformers. And that really is this black box effect. So we kind of put data in and we get data out and you kind of run the system enough until what you get out matches what you'd kind of hope you get out from the input uh, in. And then, you know, you just almost by magic, you can then have a conversation with something like ChatGPT. Um, and I think particularly at the moment, what's just fascinating is that huge leap in capabilities that we've seen from what was those more traditional kind of AI tools to the, to the um, uh, large language models and things like stable diffusion for the image recognition now. Sue Patterson. I come at this as, as very much a clinician. So words like neural network and the like are completely foreign to me. But as a clinician, I see this as a huge opportunity for us to improve animal health and welfare. I think it's really, really exciting. I think it allows us perhaps to think about filling some of those gaps. When we look at the fact we've got workforce shortages, when we look at we've got clients who want 24-7 care, I think AI gives us that huge potential under the right circumstances to improve the way in which we can provide care to our, our clients and to, our pet, and to people's pets and, and their animals generally. So for me, it's, I think it's an, a huge opportunity. Jack Pablo. So I'm going to put a little bit of a downer on it. I think it's a mega buzz term. I think it's fantastic and it's super exciting, but for me it's very much sort of advanced automation with uh, a lot of logic behind it. Um, I think the way in spinning that slightly is that um, this means that we shouldn't fear it and we should very much embrace it. I think it's a very exciting time. I think it can drive a lot of efficiencies and make our lives a lot easier. Um, so I think it's very much something that we should look to embrace because I think it can really make things much, much better. And PJ Noble. I, everything that's gone before... The emergence of these particularly exciting models that are both whimsical and funny in some of the things they'll do, but also very, very impressive in how they interact, comes because of this convergence of having huge data. Um, before, before we had huge data, you couldn't train them. There wasn't enough stuff to train them with. And then also having huge compute. Before there was huge compute, big enough compute, you couldn't use the data to do the training of these models. So that's what's sort of seen this sudden shift change. But I completely agree with the idea that they are still largely ways of automating doing things. And they can achieve things um, slightly less predictably than other automations you might expect. In, in, you know, some machines, if you put the thing at one end, it'll go through and stamp it and make it into a shape, and out comes a cube with a stamp on it. Some of these large language model-based, well, generative models, the ones that generate new text based on what you tell them, will do something new every time because they, they have a very complex internal representation of the information they've been trained on. And that does cause some risks as well because they can make stuff up based on how they were trained. They can have bias based on the content with which they were trained. And those will have unpredictable nuances in their performance as we give them more and more different tasks to do. 
because they're trained on one set of data. That doesn't mean they're good at everything. There are lots of things where you will have to look to see how they perform in each niche, each niche of information, each niche, whether you know, it's talking about endocrine disease or looking at radiographs or uh, interpreting lab results. They will have their biases, which are as a result of the data they're trained on. But they can be really great as a co-pilot in veterinary work. So I think that it's a very exciting time to actually be working in this field, just hopefully sometime before I retire, so I'll have a bit of fun with them. One thing I was very struck by was in a talk I heard sort of back end of last year, which suggested that the veterinary sector was maybe 15, 20 years behind human medicine in terms of its use and application of AI. So what I'm wondering is, do the panel feel we need to catch up and the extent to which perhaps we're already using it? Perhaps, PJ, you might want to start on that with some of your research background. So... I think it was, was quite telling. I used to go to, well, still do go to a conference quite regularly on uh, using AI for analysing text. And one of the places where there's been a, an awful lot of development in that is with psychiatry, actually, because so much psychiatry is written text. That's, that's their diagnostic test. Um, yes, there might be some lab results, but it's unlikely to look in radiographs, but it's a written text. And they, they had this massive resource, um, and so they were doing stuff that was way ahead of us, um, you know, 15, 10 years ago, sure. Um, are we behind now? I, I think what we have is, in the setting of, of human health, certainly in the UK, there is a lot of coordination across bodies for how you look after people. So you have data sets that not only include clinical notes, but data sets about their social security status, with their GP notes versus their referral notes, a whole host of other information which they're drawing together and we don't have that. We're, a lot of the initiatives that are running with veterinary work are siloed because of they're working with a practice management system that has some data or in, in a domain that has a very fixed data set. Um, and we, we are a long way behind on that. Um, and I, there are ways in which we can address that. But um, capturing the data that gives us everything we want to know about a patient journey is certainly nowhere near as evolved as it is in human medicine. But even in human medicine still, there's an awful lot of questions being asked about how do you make this useful in that setting? And I think actually in that place, in that setting, vets can do some really great stuff. We are quite agile about how we can try things out and also observant and curious about their outcomes. So I, I think vets have a lot of opportunities to catch up with and even do better than medicine as well in the use of AI tools. Any other thoughts? Uh, Sue, I mean, where do you see from this and more the practice end? It was really interesting. I was at a sustainability conference in a meeting in Ireland, ooh, end of last year, and we had some presentations from some of the pharma companies looking at some of the wearable technologies that they are using in production animals. And I think in production animal work, I think we're doing an awful lot of stuff, and we've done an awful lot of stuff for an awful long time. And I think it fits really well into the whole sustainability story about the way that our production animal vets are working collaboratively with farmers to use the sort of data that they collect in order to improve animal welfare, to look at preventative medicine, to prevent disease rather than treating disease. So I think there's some really exciting stuff that's being done there already as far as that sphere is concerned. So in that respect, I think we're doing really, really well. Ollie, bring it back down the line and then we'll move it on. Yeah, I, I think my ego won't allow me to say that the medics are doing anything better than us. 
You know, I certainly don't think we're that far behind. And I think we've probably got slightly lower barriers, both from a regulatory and a, a kind of a date, data perspective. And even, you know, potentially the kind of lifespans and disease spans that we're looking at, are, you know, are, are shorter. So, you know, I, I think if anything, you know, the opportunities are ripe for us in the veterinary community now. Liz? Yeah, so working for a company that, um, you know, employs a lot of radiologists to look at remote CT, X-ray, MRI for vets in practice, obviously, um, you know, radiology is one of those areas on the human side where actually they are far ahead of us. Um, and we sort of looked at the number of um, papers published um, on the human radiology side versus veterinary radiology side in AI. And on the human side, there are thousands every year, you know, five to 7,000 papers published um, consistently over the sort of last five, six years, and it's a growing field. There's a whole suite of, of individual tools that exist for sort of particular indications in a particular demographic to look for, you know, certain radiological changes in a specific, you know, uh, projection. Um, whereas on the veterinary side, I think there was sort of one in, you know, 2017 and two in the next year, five in the next year. We're up to about 10 or 12 papers that have been published on this. So on the radiology side, there's a huge amount, um, you know, to sort of catch up on, but that's a huge amount of exciting potential, um, you you know, we're um, working with the University of Cambridge to kind of look at um, ways of automated, um, you know, image labelling and analysis and sort of body area labelling to create these efficiencies. So I think radiology is one thing that we can look at, at the human side and potentially learn from. And then there are those sort of two-way learnings with that one healthy, particularly, you know, sort of looking at gains for both sides. And I think the, the transferability um, of this technology um, and kind of looking at for example, gene patterns, you know, in, in animals and in people and mapping across, I think this could unlock a whole sort of one health potential um, that is really quite exciting. And actually seeing that collaboration between human and veterinary grow a lot is, is one area that be, uh, there could be huge gains. Tom, then Jack, and we'll move it on after that. Yeah, so I think it's talking more about sort of narrow AI in that, in that sense. But when it comes to the more, the tools that approximate towards general AI, there's absolutely no reason for us to be left behind. We can use those tools just like anyone else can. And I was super proud with the way we brought that to market with PetsUp Copilot. We put the power of AI in the hands of hundreds of veterinary clinics, thousands of veterinary professionals, and you can immediately see them helping you know, hundreds of thousands of patients. And you can see in the data that um, AI alone or the veterinary team member alone doesn't score as well as the veterinary team member collaborating with AI in constructing messages to communicate with pet owners. There's a statistically significant difference in the customer effort score rating that pet owners give an improvement when the team is collaborating with AI. So the, these tools are out there and available to us and I just think there's no reason for us to be left behind. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, yes, we are a little bit behind. Um, I know I always bang on and say that we're about 10 years behind with our technology. Um, but one thing that I have seen is that um, we've very much been open and very adaptable to these new solutions and ideas and how things work. So I think it's a really, really exciting time for um, the veterinary space. And I think we are going to excel. I think it's our job and our duty to try to enable as much as possible and, and show people what can be done. And for you guys to be as open-minded as possible. I mean, just out of interest, uh, by a show of hands, who's actually, and I know this is a really bad example, but ChatGPT, who's actually used it? Yeah. Awesome. Which is really cool. But for those of you who haven't, you know, open it up and start utilising it, because it will give you an idea of a concept of what can be achieved. And that's on a really, really basic scale. 
Okay, we'll move it on now because I think that from the word cloud we saw earlier, the uh, potential of AI can perhaps excite and intimidate almost in equal measure. So in this next part, I'm thinking about is there a difference between what we can do with AI in practice and what we should do with it? Instinctively, I'm looking to you immediately, Sue, because the question that comes to my mind, and perhaps this is a question that the college will have to consider before too long, is can we really regulate this? A great question, and it is something that college is thinking about. We're actually looking to have a stakeholder meeting, hopefully in the next month or so, when we'll get together a whole group of people, because I think it's something we need to we need to grasp and we need to help provide some guidance to the profession. I think I think there are two aspects around regulation. I think there's a regulation of the if we want to call them medical devices, and then I think is the way in which vets and veterinary professionals should actually use those devices. As a clinician, I think it's really important when we're looking at medical devices that are potentially diagnosing, potentially treating, potentially giving us prognostic information, that those should be regulated. Because if I'm basing my clinical opinion on those, I want to know that they're safe, I want to know that they're accurate, I want to know that they're reliable, I want to know they're equitable. So I need to be assured that they are going to do the job that I want them to be. And I don't just want to be assured that that is good at the time that that device is launched. What I think is really important, and it's the same as we would look at things like drugs, you know, a, a new drug is launched and then there's feedback to the VMD if we see adverse effects from that drug so that we can modify perhaps the license indication for it. I think if we're using technology, there needs to be this monitoring system, there needs to be this system where we can get some feedback so that as clinicians we can be assured that we can rely on that sort of, that sort of technology. Where I think college comes in is not to regulate devices, but to provide the advice that we need as veterinarians to be able to use it. So that starts, for example, with our students, and we've talked about vet GDP already, we talked about BARD in one of the presentations before. There's a huge potential for this to help improve the education of our students, but I think they need to know how to use it appropriately. They need to know when they can use it, when they shouldn't use it, and I think the college has got a place to provide that guidance working with the vet schools. I think that's really important. That's a partnership thing. And then I think when we're looking at vets and we're looking at nurses in practice, again, I think there needs to be guidance in place. And I'm just floating some ideas about when vets should use it, when it's appropriate to use it, whether they should declare that it's using, should there be transparency around the fact, fact that we're actually going to use AI to help in our clinical decisions. And vets and nurses also need to take responsibility when they're using these. So again, we talked about this in one of the earlier sessions. You know, if as a clinician I'm making a diagnosis and I'm using AI, I need to be comfortable in the decision that that AI is making so that I'm relying on my clinical diagnosis if, if something goes wrong I need to be aware of the fact that that's my responsibility and I can't blame it on the machine. Jack any thoughts there? Yeah no I mean I, I think the education piece is a really important part and I think it's about enabling the profession as much as possible with regards to showing how to utilize the tools effectively and I think that's extremely important. Um, again using a really lame example but you know um, you, you can go and request ChatGPT to go and do a set task for you and the funny thing is, is that if I got you all to do it you'd all come out with probably something a little bit unique and different and someone will come out with something outrageous and I think that's a good example of how you need to go and structure and, and educate on how to affect 
effectively structure prompts, for example, so you can get the most from the tool. I think the other thing is that it is putting the onus on the professional, the veterinary professional. I think that's really, really important too, because ultimately you are the expert. Um, and I think that you have to go and validate that final response and ensure that you're happy and comfortable. And I think there is absolutely that aspect of, you know, we, we should have put some form of um, uh, governance on the set devices if you're getting the information from. But the thing we need to remember is that you are the expert. You have that final say. And it's, it's on you, basically. You can't, again, go and blame the machine and say, well, it advised me to do this. You're the one that knows better. And I think that's something that's really very important. From a, you know, a governance point of view, it is going to be very, very difficult. This is a new area, and I don't think anyone's really mastered this. Um, I mean, even from a data protection point of view, it's, it's horrifying what you could do with this. And again, that comes back to that um, educational piece, I would say. PJ, you're seeing it in the vet schools as well. In the, yeah. You know, so what, I, how are you seeing it? So I think it's true to say that um, the younger members of our community are much quicker to adopt and evaluate the use of these technologies. Uh, as an educator, it's presenting all sorts of headaches, not because we don't want people to use them, actually. I think the truth is we've got to educate them to use them appropriately and to understand the constraints uh, of each of the tools as they emerge. And that's difficult because the tools are changing so quickly. I mean, next year's tools may be a lot, lot cleverer. So we, and students can, you know, we had this discussion in a previous talk where the concept that students could use uh, these AIs to answer questions. I've set AIs some of the questions that we used in a, an exam a couple of years ago. Some questions it got zero out of five, some it got four out of five. And that's actually not unusual for a student either. Mm -hmm. So um, the reality is even as they stand, they can answer questions and they could do the exams for you. So we've got to find a way of saying, well, it wouldn't be authentic if we said that education is an AI-free zone. That would be ridiculous because um, these guys will step into practice where they will be using AI. So we have to find a way of um, evaluating that, and that's our big challenge. I don't think we've got an answer at the moment, but the discussions are very very much, uh, very lively, very lively about what to do. I'd like to reiterate uh, Sue's point. I, I think about transparency. I think we have to be very transparent about what we're using and, and what we're using it for so that no one is under any illusions and celebrate it. I, I, I don't have a problem with saying I used an AI to do this bit, but it's a good thing that you have me here to turn that into a useful plan for your patient. So transparency so that people don't feel that we're making stuff up or hiding things from them about the, the, the implications and the use, utility of AI in these settings. Tom, moving along from that, where can we integrate AI into practice most efficiently, most effectively? So I think it is finding ways for it to work alongside the venting team. And I think on the subject of regulation, as a vet, I'm happy to take responsibility for my professional judgment, but I hope we don't regulate vets and vet team members out of being able to engage with it mm. because they're direct consumer digital disruptors that aren't regulated, aren't under the same regulatory constraints that will be using this. And do I trust them to use it or do I trust vet teams to use it? Do I think they're the best place to dispense care or do I think the local vet team is best placed to provide this joined up online to offline experience for pet owners? So I really hope that we learn and educate ourselves about the, the challenges, the limitations, but we don't fall into the trap of using them as excuses not to engage mm. here and not to use it. Um, and I think in terms of how, how we do that, I think um, 
the client facing stuff is really interesting and I, I, I like this idea of um, do you disclose when you've used AI? I'm not sure. I think the, the tools become so pervasive. When I was a new grad, I would find an excuse to leave the consult room and I'd be on Google. Mm. I didn't then go back inside and say, yeah, I Googled it. You know what I mean? So there's, <laughs> there's a certain framing issue with it and I agree with the transparency completely. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not trying to be um, flippant on that, but yeah. I think that those are going to be the sorts of um, uh, challenges that we, we come across. Nice. Yeah, I mean, just coming back to the can and should thing for a moment, I think we don't know what we can do with it yet. Um, and in terms of what we should do with it, um, you know, there's a lot of potential unexpected outputs. We may well want it to give us A, and it gives us B, C, D, and X as well. Um, who here has seen The Social Dilemma, the sort of documentary? I'd, I'd highly recommend it as a watch for everybody. Um, and it's basically where the people that initially developed a lot of the social media platforms actually stepped away, you know, as developers and say, oh my goodness, it's had all these unintended consequences of sort of pushing people towards extremism, etc. Um, and with um, AI, um, because we don't know what sort of happens in the middle bit, there are some unintended consequences, some unexpected outputs that will happen. And, and so for me, what we, what we can do is we can put in place sort of principles and guidelines um, for companies to... Um, you know, look at and say, you know, can we uphold these principles and guidelines in how we use data, in how we ensure there isn't bias, um, you know, in how we're transparent about this. Um, and in terms of what we should do as veterinary professionals is actually engage with this process of AI development from beginning to end. You know, what tools would be useful to us as practitioners? Um, you know, what data sets can we provide to make sure that there isn't, you know, geographical species bias, etc. Um, you know, and, and what are the outputs, where can we feed them back in to, sure, to ensure there is that ongoing sort of quality improvement and quality assurance of these tools. So, you know, I really think we can and should engage with this. There is, you know, at the moment, it's the sort of wild west out there. Anybody can go out and sort of develop AI tools and potentially deploy them directly to pet owners. And if they're coming into our practice, we need to have some framework and some frame of reference to be able to determine how we integrate those into our clinical decision making, um, you know, in a way that actually benefits patients outcomes. So, yeah, I think we should all really engage with this from beginning to end. Ollie? Yeah, I, uh, you know, echoing a lot of points, I, I definitely, um, you know, don't envy you as, as, you know, any attempt at kind of regulation because the, the pace of change is, is so rapid, you know, and, and the worry is, 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 as you guys already said, that, you know, we regulate ourselves into, into kind of obscurity and get, you know, kind of overtaken by uh, directing to, uh, to consumer tools before we've had a chance to uh, give ourselves the right opportunities. But I think what's interesting is that that's kind of the clinical um, use case of AI tools. There's also the kind of non-clinical use cases. So we've got administrative processes that we do you know, internally as part of clinic workflows. We've got ways in which we interact between systems that a clinic might you know, kind, of, uh, kind of do. And, and even um, you know, how we can use AI for drug research and the data collection you guys talked about. And, and I think there are all of these kind of much easier wins as well that we, could, that we can do. The, the really complicated bit is that thing around, you know, fundamentally, can we ask a, a large language model to diagnose a pet and have faith in the answer? I think the answer right now to that is definitely not. Um, I, I, whether that will come, you know, I, probably. I mean, you know, that we might reach a, a point like that. But I think what, what we need to focus on as a profession is all of the wonderful things we can use AI for now that don't have those same concerns. 
um, and will drive animal animal welfare, f- you know, forward and also kind of improve customer outcomes. Can I just come in on that? Because there's, there's a story that I was told um, uh, by a vet actually here, where they knew the clinical answer, they just wanted help with how to communicate that answer. So I think it was a whelping bitch. The breeder had said there were five puppies in there. Uh, four had come out and they only wanted some oxytocin. It's like, clinically, I don't need an LLM to tell me what the situation is, but I could do with some help of how to phrase the no, right? So there's different ways to use, well, if that was the clinical judgment. Um, which I but it's also trying to explain, that, like you say, the complex situations. It's, I find it with, from a technical standpoint, you know, if I go and speak to you guys in tech, it's like double Dutch. And when you guys go and speak about very complex cases to, to your clients, it can be very complicated and difficult to explain. And I think the great thing with these tools is they can actually show you a way of putting in simple talk, um, but also actually give you some um, recommendations on how to actually use some imagery to, to explain it, which I think is great. And so just seconding on quite a number of these points is it's trying to tackle the quick ones, the easy ones, and, and it's trying to look at how we work and how we function um, and our general process and looking at, um, you know, what are the things that, what are the mundane things that we do on a regular basis and how repetitive are they and, and how, how, how easy are they to automate? How easy are they to implement AI and, and how they're going to enable the team? So, I think it is, again, trying to look at how we can potentially empower the team and show them that this isn't an enemy, this is actually going to be something that's going to enable us and free up time and allow us to provide um, better client and patient care. We'll go on to consider some of the more human questions about this in a moment, but just a quick thought from each of you before we do that. The single most exciting thing for you in terms of clinical applications of AI, I'm going to come down the line from PJ. Well, because I work in a research group trying to monitor disease... I think that's very exciting for me. Being able to start getting to a point where you can understand how disease is moving around and what it's doing, that, that's, that we can automate that on a scale we never could before. So um, from an educational point, again, so many things we can do to make education better for vets. So, I suppose we're an evidence-based profession, so I suppose it gives me access to data to do my job better. Ollie? I don't know whether this is a cop-out, but I think freeing up the clinical team to use their human skills in order to deliver care by the AI offloading the things that it can do, you know, without us worrying too much about it giving uh, the wrong diagnosis. So uh, I think more how it enables and kind of supercharges what the human can do is what's most exciting to me at the moment. Okay, Liz, Tom, Jack, quickly, and then we'll, we'll move it on. Yeah, so I am a very visual person. I love some of the work that um, the University of Surrey are doing, looking at mapping the MRI findings of the skulls of Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, the, the brains of Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, onto images taken of their head on an iPhone. Um, because if that unlocks um, you know, the potential to diagnose um, Chiari-like malformation and syringomyelia um, you know, from a, a photo that an owner can take at home and send into the vet. So the potential for things like um, you know, quicker, earlier diagnosis, you know, potentially at lower price points, etc., um, you know, I just think has enormous potential. There are numerous examples of this that's just one we've just uncovered uh, some evidence that where eventually team a member and pets up co-pilot collaborate in communicating with a pet owner uh, the likelihood of a uh, transaction with a local veterinary clinic in the next two weeks significantly increases so just teasing out those those evidence-based use cases in client communication i think is going to be exciting on a more geeky level the intersection of um, quantum computing and, and ai i think is just extraordinarily interesting 
for me, it's predictive, preemptive uh, healthcare. So, uh, utilising solutions like, for example, wearables to better enable the uh, veterinary team, but also providing hopefully better outcomes for the patient. I think that's the bit that really excites me. Okay, let's move it on to some of the more human challenges around this technology, because we know that change can be a point of concern for some. So, how do we engage our colleagues, but also our clients with this stuff? And who am I going to start with here? Ollie. Yeah, I, I think what's really um, uh, interesting about this is, is, is the kind of trust aspect. And I think as a society as a whole, more and more people are kind of going to interact with AI tools and that's going to kind of increase kind of broad trust. But, it, it, you know, it, it is a bit like Googling things, as, as we've kind of, you know, uh, analogised before, where you kind of need to know how to interpret it. And I think what, what we need to be able to do is upskill people so that they realise that the machines can hallucinate and they can tell you things that sound really, really convincing and they deliver it in a really convincing way, but it's just totally made up. Um, and, and I think, you know, if we, if we can really um, uh, increase the trust by people understanding the limitations of the tools and how to best use them, um, then uh, hopefully we can increase that engagement because uh, at the moment I think there is that fear on both sides a little bit sometimes from just the sort of word AI. Um, and you hear us talking about how it's non-deterministic, so you can ask it the same question twice and get two different answers. Um, so I think it's really understanding how to use the tools is what we need to do. Tom? I think just using it is the way to learn about it. So in my talk this morning, I referenced an imaginary teapot conference. And I googled for images of a teapot conference. Turns out there aren't that many teapot conferences. But um, Dali, through ChatGPT, with a prompt, could produce a picture of what my imaginary teapot conference, I haven't gone potty, um, <laughs> would look like. And so that's just a simple way of like, okay, that image didn't exist. How would I have created that previously? It's a super cool use case. And uh, as we do that with each other, I think we'll educate each other on the limited... I also use it to try and create a happy birthday message for my son, Bowie, and my nephew, Owen. And it wrote, boo vi and uvin. So it wasn't good for that text transcription. You know, there's limitations there too. So, being the somewhat cynical journalist that I am, I can remember in my industry going through processes of technology being introduced as though it were progress, but it didn't actually work. It tended to drive customers away and rubbed staff up the wrong way. So, how do we avoid that here? I think the thing that, for me that's really important is that all our clients are different and I think the way that we approach it with some groups of, patient, of clients is going to be completely different to the way that we approach it with others. So for example, my children who are both Generation Z I believe will embrace AI without any problems at all. They're very happy to talk to a chatbot when they're looking at their bank statements. My husband who is a baby boomer, that's giving away his age, um, if a chatbot comes up he'll just turn the screen off completely. So I think the way that we engage with different client sets is going to be completely different and I think we need to be adaptable to do that I think that's really important and the other thing I just want to say when we're talking about AI which I think is really important is that I think a lot of people are very terrified about AI it will never ever replace vets because chatbots and AI can't be empathetic, it can't communicate with clients, it can't provide them with the level of care that they want. So for me, this is something to help us do our jobs much better. It is never going to do us all out of jobs. Jack? Yeah, I agree. And 
partly disagree. Um, I, I completely agree in the sense of where we are right now, 100%, and we shouldn't absolutely um, fear the technology in any way. We need to take it off the pedestal. Like I say, it's not true intelligence. It, it is not a threat to us. This is something that can enable us, enhance us, make our lives so much better. Obviously, where it goes, I don't believe that we're ever going to get to that point. But obviously, with the theory of what they say that, you know, a general intelligence and going beyond that to super intelligence, yes, that, that's a, a world that's... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it's going to look and how it's going to work and, and whether it's even possible. But um, I, I completely agree in the sense of, you know, this is not something that we need to fear and we do need to take off the pedestal and embrace it because I think it can be superb. Please. Yeah, so I just want to kind of pick up on something. We've been talking about narrow and general AI, sort of assuming that everybody in the room knows what that is. So at the moment, narrow AI is sort of specific tools designed to do specific outputs, whereas the general AI is that more kind of general intelligence where, you know, the AI tools can actually do multiple sort of things that would be defined as human intelligence, sort of mi mimicking and even overtaking um, human intelligence when you get to the sort of super intelligence. And there's a lot going around in the media that we haven't really talked about, how a lot of the big names around AI, the godfathers of AI, um, you know, have stepped out of some of the big companies um, developing these because of their, you know, publicly cited fears around the sort of potential around the corner the, the general AI and the impact that that could have on humanity. Now, we're not there yet, and sort of even the experts disagree on how quickly we're going to get there. Um, and nobody really knows what that looks like. So, you know, I think it's good for us to have a level of caution and a level of awareness that, you know, we don't actually know what's around the corner with this technology. What we know today, for me, you know, knowledge, education is empowerment. So, you know, my kind of journey into AI, the reason I'm sat on this panel is because I just developed this enormous curiosity about it. Well, how can I make this work for me? How can I understand it? So, you know, I, I sort of co-wrote a, a white paper. You can Google VetCT, veterinary, you know, artificial intelligence, white paper. Um, and it'll bring up like a 63-page document that I co-wrote with ChatGPT looking at all the different aspects that could possibly affect even from sustainability, well-being of veterinary teams, equine industry, farm, etc., etc. Um, and that, for me, has given me a huge, hugely powerful framework to kind of understand the sort of basics of what this technology does as far as I'm able. I'm not particularly technology minded. Um, but now I feel a lot more confident um, to be able to assess these tools, to um, be able to embrace them, adopt them where they're going to benefit me, um, and really to understand how important it is for us to all drive this technology in a way that is going to benefit us as individuals, us as veterinary teams and practices, and ultimately our patients as well. PJ. So much has been said that, that makes perfect sense, and I, I don't want to... <clears throat> I just second pretty much everything everyone said. I think understanding is absolutely critical. It, it's the same with any test you use. Um, this one's a little bit complicated. You probably don't need to understand how a neural network is weighted in order for you to use it, but you have to understand what the fact that it is a neural network means for how it will, what it will output. And so just understand the limitations. And if we, uh, if we make sure as a team we're aware of that, then we can, as teams, understand how to integrate those tools into, into, into daily use. Some of those applications are, you know, just really lovely assistance to make sure that the, the, vet, the owner gets the best um, communications. There will come times when we start using them more for diagnostic things, but I hope as a vet that doesn't come soon because that's the part of the job I enjoy. And I think as a profession we want to... So that people in the profession are happy using them, we want to evaluate them. 
We want to be evaluating these and saying, saying this is really good at doing this, or this is not very good at doing this, so that understanding is part of the journey we all take together as a profession. For clients, um, partly how do we get them to engage with AI? Well, lots of clients already are. They walk through the door and they say, and you see it on the news. I went to ChatGPT, my vet had done this and this and this and this, but I asked ChatGPT and they said my dog had Addison's. And you kind of go, oh, yeah, of course it did. Um, because that was, it would have suggested Addison's to 20 other dogs that didn't have Addison's, possibly even 100. But um, in the case of the owners, it's us demonstrating that we understand what the AI has done in giving them that advice. So again, it comes down to us understanding what those tools can do and contextualizing that for our owners. So in some cases, we can encourage them, say, well, have a look and see what you, what you think if you want to. Or when they come through the door and say, my AI says it's got this and look at you accusingly because you didn't say that before, you can say, well, that's, that's a, fair enough, it's lower down on the list, but given all the things we've done already, that, that's something we need to consider now. So understanding is going to be absolutely central and working together to make sure that everyone in the team understands what there's in themselves and chatting about it, having a go with ChatGPT and Bard and going, well, this is kind of crazy, it's really cool how it did that. And, oh, but I, it did make up a word or two. Let's just see, let's, you know, we're clever and we learned a load of stuff and thankfully we're here to vet that information. Pun not intended. Um, so, yeah, understanding. But I think, I mean, sorry, the, the, just going on to your point, because I, I think where you mentioned that, uh, you know, people are utilizing ChatGPT to go and query and get some advice regarding some, well, very specific advice. Yeah. This is all not new. Yeah. We've got the same thing with Google. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is Dr. Google 2.0. So it's not a new challenge. It's the yeah. same challenge. It's just trying to work out how we address it and uh, embrace it. One thing I was struck by, and bearing in mind the point that you made, Sue, that this isn't going to replace vets, but I remember hearing a talk at a conference last spring, I think it was, and the speaker said, AI won't replace vets, but vets that use AI will replace those that don't. Was that right? Let's start with Jack on this one. So it's a really good point. Um, if you take basic things like spell checker, some people just will write, type up a document and just do autocorrect. And you're not learning, you're not developing. So you become sort of slightly lazy. And the same applies with utilizing AI. If you're not clever and you don't use it in a smart way, you're going to end up becoming lazy. And, and ultimately, um, you know, you're not going to learn, you're not going to develop. I think it's ultimately trying to take these tools and utilize them as something, again, we keep on saying, I think everyone said it so far, in power, and I know I've said it multiple times. So I think, yes, I think there is the chance that, um, you know, if you don't embrace these tools and you don't utilize them to help empower you and educate you, then you will, to a point, get left behind. Tom, we'll take it up the line and then move on to our sort of last thoughts. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. I think it, there's all kinds of technologies that vets have got away without adopting and they survive. So I don't think we need to be too fear-based about it, right? Um, I think Andrew Cohen likes the quote of um, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed and I think we can expect that to exist for quite some time. I think one thing I would challenge is, uh, Sue, on the, the assumptions around the demographics of adoption. I think we should be careful before we assume too much there because actually... Um, the pandemic made millennials out of all of us in terms of consumers. Mm. And so we see you know, a 92-year-old uh, woman in Illinois with PetSap to help uh, because both her and her German Shepherd have mobility issues, for example. And then from the veterinary team side of things, it's actually often the more experienced vets that are actually quite confident that if the AI hallucinated, they would be able to override it with their own clinical judgment. 
whereas maybe a new graduate would be more prevaricating and not so sure. So I, I think we should be careful not to assume uh, what the adoption pattern is going to be. And uh, I would encourage all of us just to look at it and second the uh, Liz's white paper. I thought it was a really good piece of work. Mm. Thank you. Liz? Yeah, so that quote actually came from a radiologist um, about the radiologists adopting AI will replace those that don't. And if you look at the field of radiology, for example, there's a, a sort of sub subfield called radiomics where it's actually looking at the individual pixels on digital images which are beyond the human eye perception. So it has huge potential to actually unlock a whole load of extra diagnostic information beyond what we can see as people. So obviously the radiologists that are employing that, you know, but that still has to be taken in the context, the clinical context of the patient and you know the history etc which you know AI is still a very long way away from it's taking that whole picture as a whole so it has a huge potential to augment the radiologist there but not supersede the radiologist um, and I think we have um, huge potential um, from that point of view and therefore it would almost be remiss of radiologists not to embrace the tools that are there because they might potentially be missing you know additional information that could improve patient outcomes. Ollie, Sue, PJ, fairly briefly, if you would, and then we'll move on. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I, I think it's still, you go around and you ask clinics what practice management system they use, and, and, and you can see this huge spectrum, and there are still clinics out there using pen and paper, and they survived. So, you know, I, I think it's not going to uh, totally, uh, you know, eliminate people who want to kind of do things the old-fashioned way, but I, I think we probably will see potentially in five years time vets who aren't using AI in the same way as we might think of clinics now who are using pen and paper still for their uh, for their for, for their record keeping um, I, I am slightly uh, I think maybe more with more with with Jack that I am a little bit more wary that we might all be replaced by our robot overlords um, at some point uh, and if they're listening then um, you know I for one welcome them but if we um, <laughs> I, I, I think that um, um, one of the things that, that we need to be yeah, just potentially aware of is that there is this concept of what's called a, a fast liftoff, a fast takeoff, or a kind of a singularity, a point where if you get an AI that is able to improve itself and to do so better than a human can do, that becomes this just positive flywheel. And potentially very, very quickly, you could zoom and have vastly more capabilities than what we've got now. And I, and I think there's huge uncertainty. I think actually probably what we do as a veterinary profession might be quite low down on our list of priorities at that, at, at that point as the superintelligence has come. But um, I think it is just worth being aware that, that change can happen very rapidly in this, in this sector. You, you asked briefly, will vets who use AI replace those that don't? Yes, but not yet. Yeah, I like that briefly. PJ? Yeah. I think that practices that adopt tools that allow them to offer a better service, you know, better radiography equipment, better surgical tools, are more likely to succeed in certain areas and certain places. And so adoption of technology, and this is no different to any of those things, so the adoption of these technologies will empower vets to provide a better service and look after their patients better and have better welfare outcomes for them. If you choose not to use them, you, you'll need to be in the right place at the right time to do that because if you've got a practice up the road who, who, where everything's quicker, smoother, has a nicer user interface for the owner because they adopt these technologies and everyone is able to deliver that kind of service, then there'll be competition that will mean that the, those sort of practices will struggle more. But, um, yeah, I, 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 there will be a place for choosing which tools you use. I think we've, one thing we've really illustrated today is there are lots of different places where the AIs will play a role in practice. And it, it, 
actually different different components of that of that portfolio will also affect how usefully you improve your practice by adopting them okay well we've got a few minutes left i think before we open it up to our questions from the floor so before we do that i want a minute or so from each of you your one biggest opportunity from the use of ai and your single biggest challenge pj i'll start with you um the biggest opportunity for AI. Um, <clears throat> I think the, um, these, these, these will eventually progress to the point where they can offer a very clear diagnostic review on a patient. And that's huge. It's challenging because then we'll have to understand what to do with that better. Um, the biggest opportunity to get there is, is, is actually through sharing data to create the stuff that trains these things. Um, they're trained on stuff that isn't specifically veterinary, and we need to be able to create... The biggest opportunity we have is, is to take everything we have in our clinical notes, in our veterinary texts, and create models that are useful to us. Um, so that would be, I suppose, a big opportunity. What was, what was the biggest... Uh, challenge. The biggest challenge. The challenge is understanding what, what these things are. Is, is making sure that we are, are able to use them wisely by understanding how they work and what the limitations are. So, so uh, same as PJ when it comes to the disadvantages, the limitations, knowing what they do, knowing what they can't do. And for me, again, I, I'm a clinician. This gives me the opportunity to provide a better level of client care. It allows me to, to improve what I can do to help my, help my clients, and that's, that's what I get. That's why I'm a vet. Ollie? I think short term, those non-clinical applications are the most interesting to me and I think immediately very kind of um, uh, applicable. Long term, I think having a, you know, a, a AI buddy that basically acts like a kind of safety net for you that can just kind of be a tap on the shoulder if, you know, just giving you hints maybe on a, on a case or so, I think would be, would be, would be super exciting. Um, in terms of the uh, the, the negatives uh, and, and ignoring kind of robot overlords, I think the um, biggest ones are like trust and, and understanding of the tools because they are so good at, um, at at mimicry. I mean, that's what they're doing is mimicry. That um, it's um, you know it's really easy to to be duped by them, and uh, I think that's a risk at, at, for the consumer uh, and for us as clinicians. Liz, so I think it is things like the um, radiomics, the genomics, you know, there's a huge potential for it to mine a whole load of data, um, you know, that we just haven't had the capacity. I mean, its capacity is effectively limitless um, in terms of the amount of additional data it can gather. It can unlock some really exciting things that we don't even necessarily know about yet in terms of, you know, improving preventative care and diagnostics in particular. So that's, that's really exciting for me. I think the biggest challenge really is that, that usability, sort of knowing that use case being able to assess those tools um, there's a really nice example on the human side again with radiology where there's a sort of library of all the different radiology tools that are really nicely set out with kind of you know the limitations the sort of um, accuracy levels a bit like you know we know with some 
sort of PCRs, the risk of them amplifying, you know, false negatives. And, you know, we, we sort of have those positive negatives of those confidence intervals almost that we can work within. And we almost need the same for AI and how we create that and what, what that looks like, um, you know, is, is a, an enormous challenge. And it's great to hear the, the RCVS are sort of getting this discussion together. Um, so, you know, that to me, that, that usability, making sure that vets and veterinary teams can assess these tools very quickly and apply them very quickly and efficiently and have confidence, the right level of confidence and the right level of scepticism, um, you know, to make sure that they do work in our benefits uh, is, is the biggest challenge. Tom, then Jack, and then we'll start taking a few questions. So the, the Veterinary Innovation Council says that only 8% of all pet issues are addressed by veterinary expertise. That means 92% of all pet issues go unaddressed by the people best placed to address them, the local veterinary team. The problem with that is not that it's only 8%. The problem is it's predominantly pet owners that choose which 8% are worthy of our time and attention. If we can use tools like AI, but other technologies too, to uh, allow pet owners to conveniently surface more of the pet issues to us, such that the veterinary team gets to cherry pick which of those issues take up the limited in clinic time and resource, I think we'll be better off and our patients will get better off. So that's uh, the opportunity. The challenge I would pick is a meta challenge, that the real challenge is that we don't let the very real challenges that AI presents scare us or stop us from embracing the opportunities. We, we, we do need to engage. Jack, finally. I think it's unlocking the uh, information from the data. Um, I think there's just so many cases in where it can be utilised. I mean, like I say, I've, I've picked on um, the use of wearables and the fact that we're able to interrogate that data and provide more uh, like a preemptive and predictive service to our clients and the patients, which I think is uh, massively empowering and, and very exciting. Um, because everyone else is brought up sort of the aspect of, of training, education um, and enablement of the team. Um, I'm going to pick on another one, uh, being a proper nerd, uh, data security. Mm. It horrifies me. <laughs> the fact that we're going to be putting in potentially lots of confidential information. Again, it comes back to the education piece, it really does. Um, but, you know, essentially we are creating some major issues for ourselves considering we're not even on top of, you know, the basic data protection aspects at the moment. Okay, thanks very much. We've got some very interesting questions in on the QR, so thank you very much for those. I'm going to start with this one. Um, if AI tools are more accurate and reliable than humans, are we at the point where it's unethical to have a human do it? Who fancies starting on that one? Go uh, on, PJ. I would just say that they're not yet, is, is yeah. the first thing I would say there. So, phew, we don't have to address that problem just yet, maybe. Um, the, the truth is that, that there, if, if there are going to be situations where we regulate, we are going to have to find some way of benchmarking things. And all the things we need to do is we need to find these very good, careful balances between obstructing the benefits that can be derived while protecting against the risk. So, but yeah, the, the, there was a question that was asked before, was um, will there be a point at which a vet will be negligent if they choose not to seek the advice of an AI. Um, not very soon, but that horizon is totally unpredictable. I think we've said, you know, that when I say not very soon, that could be next year. Hopefully not. I'm hoping it's five years, maybe ten years, and I'll be retired and I'll be looking at the court cases in the paper. But, uh, but, but there, there, would be a point at, there would be a point at which, if it were true that an owner was better served by talking to an AI, then you would have to be honest that that were the case and illustrate how you add benefit to that discourse. 
Because that's based on your professional judgment, ultimately, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And that's the thing we've got to remember. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that from our other panellists, Liz? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's some cases, so, for example, you know, in cytology, actually, um, the AI can assess some cytology and predict metastatic potential, for example, of some cancers better than, you know, a human cytologist. Um, and, you know, in that particular scenario, it's kind of, you know, you do your best till you know better than you do better. So this is just another area where it'd be coming to conferences, keeping up to date, having that CPD, you know, we're not all 100% on all of our, you know, diagnostics and treatments all of the time, but we're all constantly learning. So this would just be built into that picture of constant learning, dissemination of knowledge and keeping up to date. Um, yeah, so it will be as remiss of us to not keep up to date with some of the AI tools that are out there as it is for any other kind of diagnostic tool or treatment. Any other thoughts before I take another one? Tom, I think... There's a super technical point of um, <laughs> while we're dealing not with quantum computers, computers can't really tolerate continuous variables very well and there's complexity theory around um, the accumulation of rounding errors limits the, the ultimate ability for them to actually come to improve judgments and so it is, they accumulate errors pretty much just as rapidly as we do and so it's where you bucket those errors and what direction of compromise you choose so I think without a sea change I don't see that point that point coming it's going to be powerful and it's going to be a powerful tool but I don't see that point coming where uh, ethically it's going to be improved at creative problem solving decision making the types of things that a GP vet would be involved in but the key point there is it's a tool yeah and that's what we've got to sure. remember yeah Ollie, you want to come in? Or? Well, I, I mean, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe for Sue as well, but I think the bar for negligence is very high for actual negligence in the same way as you could argue that not having a, you know, I don't know, an MRI machine in your, in your clinic, you know, it doesn't make you negligent if you don't, if you don't, if you don't have the tooling or don't, don't use it necessarily. Uh, I, I think, you know, we have big disparities between us as to like when we think it might be like, I think if you asked each of us to put a finger in the air, is it going to happen? And when would it happen? You'd get, you know, kind of six, six different answers. Um, but, but, but I think, you know, it will likely be, you know, one of those, another tool in the arsenal, as, as, as everyone said, for, for the kind of foreseeable future, unless something changes. Yes, sir? I think until we get a new Veterinary Surgeons Act, we qualify and we're omni-competent to treat absolutely everything. And when you look at the volume of information that our new grads are accumulating, it is massive compared to the amount that I had to assimilate many hundreds of years ago. And I think we're going to have to use AI and we're going to have to embrace AI in order to provide the level of care that our clients are going to demand. But it is a tool. Hmm. This looks like a question for you, Sue. Um, yeah. When might the RCVS start using AI to speed up their complaints procedures? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can promise you as part of the review that we are looking at that. So, yes, it's something we're considering because, yes, the college does like to move with the times, but obviously what we need to do when we're providing advice, we make, need to make sure that that's the right advice. So this is something that will require a certain amount of thought. But, yes, absolutely, college is looking to innovate as well. Really good question here from uh, John G. Um, we've heard quite a lot on how AI will improve patient and client care. What is the opportunity to improve how we look after our team members and ourselves? Who wants to start on that, Liz? 
Yeah, I'm actually uh, writing an article at the moment on AI and veterinary well-being. There is actually a kind of well-being section in the white paper. Um, one example, just let's take one, you know, sort of an easy win. Um, it's actually been shown in the, the human medical side that, um, you know, the, the sort of admin burden contributes to burnout. Uh, and that's one nice example. There are, there are already kind of multiple tools out there that can hugely ease the admin burden. And I've spoken to several people over the course of this conference that use this in their consult rooms now, you know, just have their phone open on the side sort of auto-transcribing. There are even tools that can um, look at what you've transcribed, summarise it for you, you know, create an owner handout, pull data information off the internet for like resources and further reading and reference things for, um, you know, to, to sort of reference what you're saying um, to actually enhance your, your clinical notes in your clinical discussion. Um, so that's one example where actually it could be a huge win. I think Sean from Talker to is here and they do exactly that. And even, uh, I believe that there's a, a PMS that's also integrating that as well and actually um, transcribed to soap notes as well, which is quite cool. And that's just one example. Question here aimed specifically at you, Jack. Is there any current concerns of AI hacking? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yes. Um, no, so I mean, um, the, the major concern at the moment is the fact that these tools are actually being utilised to um, use and, and enable people to hack um, because obviously it's a, it's a quick and easy thing to do and you don't really need much knowledge so we're ending up with a lot of these uh, sort of green hat hackers sort of young people that are a little bit bored and want to play um, and it's already bad enough having these tools that um, enable you, you just quickly download them and you can go and point them somewhere and you don't quite know what you're doing. Obviously from an AI perspective it's now another level and it's super easy to do. Um, I think the black box aspect, the bit that we don't understand, is going to be difficult because not many people understand it other than the people that actually go and spun up in the first place. Um, but equally, it is always going to be an absolute risk and something that we do need to consider 100%, yes. Tom, you're nodding. Yeah, I disagree. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I had a website called harmlesshackers.com, so me and Jack have that in common. Um, but not all hackers are harmless, unfortunately. <laughs> Liz, you want to come in? Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, you know, it's a bit of an eye-opener for me starting to use these tools, as a lot of them are sort of plugged into the internet. So if, you know, you said, oh, go and have a play with ChatGPT, it's really cool, but just be cognizant that you don't upload any sort of client data, any confidential 100%. data, um, because you don't know where it might get spat out the other end. And, and there's also the, the, the aspects that... If if we kind of rephrase or relook at the, the term hacking, so obviously I'm looking from a cybersecurity point of view, but then there's the aspect of us influencing the tools. Yeah. I'm not sure if everyone, anyone remembers the Twitter bot that Microsoft decided to launch that ended up being a neo-Nazi and all these other things, like it, it, a terrible representation of the world, but that is another concern that we've got because it's all based on the information that we provide. It's feeding off our information, and so that can be a risk to us as well. I think I'll throw this one at you, Ollie, finishly. Uh, could you prescribe based on AI alone? Uh, I'm kind of like looking at Sue and wondering whether I'm going to be, uh, be up in front of PI if I, uh, if I did. I mean, I think uh, AI certainly um, could, you could ask the AI a question, you would get an answer that would seem like you could prescribe it. Whether you should do what it tells you to do, uh, I think is a, is a whole different question and the answer is probably no um, to it. I think one of the things that the guys have kind of all talked about is this 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 idea of kind of the training um, and what goes into these models. And there is a process called reinforcement learning through human feedback, RLHF. And they kind of take these raw models and then they kind of interrogate them and humans kind of moderate the answers. And what happens when you do that is you tend to get fewer 
Nazi robots, which is a great thing, but you also can affect, have unintended side effects. And one of the unintended side effects is that they become much worse at doing simple things like understanding probability or basic mathematics. And so through the way in which we kind of reinforcement learn these models, we might find that, you know, we, we end up with models that are brilliant for, you know, kind of everyday things, and we actually make different models that are really, really specific for um, something like prescribing guidelines. But uh, absolutely, I think now probably the answer is uh, no, don't prescribe based on chat GPT. <laughs> so you were going to come in there? Yeah, I mean, um, PJ gave a really lovely presentation earlier on today, and he was talking about the ability of these things to hallucinate, is that mm. what you call? And they come up with completely fictitious stuff. So I would be really worried about prescribing on the basis of that alone. And it's all, it's all about clinical judgment, isn't it? They're there as a tool to, to help users. Just one other thing. We've talked about the perception when the media and people are talking about things is that we're talking about this concept of much more general AI. I think all of us are more focused on these very specific ones and actually you can make tools that are more focused. There are lots of tricks you can introduce including the reinforcement for your human feedback but other tools in terms of what the model can select as its outputs. Um, you can limit that so it can only talk about certain things. So you can make tools that are bespoke for specific tasks. Um, but certainly not in the foreseeable, and again, we shouldn't say, what does foreseeable mean? We're all going to be different about that at the moment. Um, in the, for the foreseeable future, it will always be essential that, that, that someone looks at it and goes, that makes sense. Um, there may be something that's giving them a hint. Why, why don't you try this? But it's going to have to be a vet for, for the foreseeable future. It says, that makes sense, and that's a safe choice and a logical choice in this case. Well, I think, I mean, the key thing that we've, we've already referenced is, are you happy with your clients going to chat GPT and asking a question and following that advice? Yeah. If the answer to that question is no, then you shouldn't do it too. Because you can hack the LLM, you can hack the AI, even if there are safeguards in the prompt engineering around the AI, they could ask the right kind of question in the right way, where the, um, the chatbot would give the answer they wanted. You can do that. I think we've got time for a couple more questions from the, from the technology here. Um, how would using AI affect pricing? Who fancies a go at that? Tom, you're smiling. Well, I think you could use AI to create improved pricing models. I think that, that, that could be a smart way to do it. Is to, there's a lot of uh, nuance in pricing. Gone are the days where we could just whack our prices up by 10% across the board year on year. You know, that, that kind of super, infla super inflationary price increases that were happening for about a decade before inflation hit the broader economy means that we are in danger now of meeting price elasticity of demand where further price increases uh, could dampen consumer demand and, and, and send them elsewhere with potentially worse patient outcomes. There's obviously the CMA review. So uh, being more nuanced about how we price in pricing models, I like to think that we can do that with a bit of thought ourselves, but why not have a, a, a check with AI and see, you know, what, what's Ollie? I was um, chatting with, uh, with the guys at, at, at Pet Proactive earlier on today, and they're doing that for insurance, which I think is, is really interesting. So I'm not necessarily looking at the actual pricing model, but how you decide whether claims are, uh, you know, are, are to be paid, but also what the premiums are for individual animals based on their um, you know, uh, uh, likelihood to get certain conditions. And I, and I think that's a really interesting application. 
think I'll take this one for probably aimed at you mostly, PJ. I mean, how might this technology change veterinary education from learning information to interpretations and application? Um, it's going to do kind of all of that. Um, the, there is no doubt about it that vets are going to be entering... Uh, uh, certainly the students who are joining now are going to be join, going into practice in five years' time, and whew, there's going to be a lot of different stuff out there. So education is going to be about information because they're still going to have to come out with the ability to judge the quality of what the tool is telling them. I can't see that going in five years. So um, what we need to do is to make sure that we're very abreast of these things. As you can imagine, universities and curricula are not hugely agile in how they develop and we're, we're having to look at them and go they need to be hugely agile. as it turns out Liverpool is doing a curriculum review I'm the future technologies guy on it so I'm sitting there with a headache half the time um, but yeah so we're going to have to teach people how to use these tools um, just how much day one knowledge they have to have is a, is a bigger debate um, I've always erred on the side of reasoning and understanding the limitations of what you know, um, so that you, if, you, if your reasoning says, I don't know enough, I've got to find out more, either with a test or with a lookup or uh, by utilising some other tool, then that's what I'll do. Um, I think that certainly the, 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 the vet who thinks they will walk out into the world knowing everything they need to know on the day when they graduate and they won't need to look at a book or an A or anything else like that, that's gone. That won't happen now. So I think education is about, is, will, will be about... Um, contextualizing the use of these tools for our students and also using them to improve the way in which we teach them. Quick thoughts, and I want to take one more question. And that's exactly what I was going to say. I think it's got the ability to improve the student experience mm. absolutely enormously. And we saw huge innovations during COVID when we were forced yeah. to innovate. And some of the stuff that came out of COVID around AI was, was fantastic. So I think it's got a huge opportunity to improve the young vets who are coming into practice. Yeah, very quick, Liz. And around accessibility and inclusion as well, you know, actually adapting information to different learning styles could actually yeah. improve the accessibility of veterinary education. I'm going to take one final question, as I know we're getting close to the, uh, to the wire here. Is the narrative of experiment with AI or get left behind a dangerous one in terms of its use for diagnosis versus efficiency? And how do we control that narrative? Who fancies a go at that? I'm looking at Ollie, he's smiling at me. <laughs> As a nervous smile. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm still kind of parsing the question, I think, a little bit. But, but, but I mean, I, I think you only know if you try and, and kind of assess what the tools, are, what, what the tools are, are capable of. I think one of the things that kind of links back to the, to the previous question is that, that these LLMs in particular, which we're spending a lot of time kind of talking about, they are unable to reason. Um, and that is what we as clinicians have such a grounding in, you know, this idea of kind of first principles and being able to reason, you know, reason through the answers. And that's what we have to do as we apply what the tool is telling us, we have to reason, you know, reverse reason what the, out, what, what the outputs are. Um, but, uh, I mean, my view, I, I guess I'm, I'm on a tech panel, right? I'm going to say, like, you know, you don't be a Luddite, you know, go, go along with it, I think. Some brief thoughts from the other panellists? Yeah, there's... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, was just, I think at the moment there is a bit of a danger there um, and I think this is why it is really important to have a bit more sort of guidance, um, you know, and transparency around what these tools can tell us, what they can't tell us, particularly, um, you know, the, the sort of 
accuracy or versus inaccuracy and, and looking for those unintended outputs. So I think at the moment there is a bit of a danger here. There aren't that many diagnostic and treatment tools out there at the moment, but I think certainly getting those frameworks in place to enable the clinician to sort of understand the potential risks as well as the potential benefits are really important. And also to be mindful that there is a thing called automation bias, where as humans we're more likely to trust the machine than we are to trust the human. Um, so just sort of be aware that that bias also does exist and, and not to kind of over-trust the machines. PJ, I think you wanted to come in. I just, the, the uh, investigate experiment narrative, I think the experiment narrative is, is a really important one. And I think I'd love everybody to come and work with the universities doing some experimentation. I think we, we have a, a profession that has got so many opportunities for experimenting in how to use these things. We're sensible enough, sensible enough, to look out, uh, to, to say, this is worth finding out about how this works. And universities are very well set up for setting up these kind of studies. Freshmen might need to chip in a little. I don't know what you think. Um, but, um, but I think, we, the, the, uh, yes, we have to experiment because the, they are here to stay. So the more we research them in order to understand how they're going to work, the better we will be at using them and the better, and the better they will serve us. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think the experimentation narrative, experiment's not evil unless you, you're, you're, we're not all mad scientists. We can, do, we can do really useful experimentation that helps the profession. Any other final, final thoughts? Yeah, so there's a, a quote from Peter Jocker where he says, there's a difference between doing something right and doing the right thing. And I think that's really telling here that where we do need to use our judgment because the righter you do the wrong thing, the, the wronger you become. Right? But if you do the right thing wrong, you, you make a mistake that you can learn from. And, and so I think we do have to be uh, discerning about our direct direction of travel and not just say any experimentation is good. And, and like we said all along, apply our professional judgment to how we experiment. At which point I think we'll call a halt to proceedings. I think the clock has now beaten us. All that remains for me to do is to thank our panellists and to thank you for your great questions. And we may do this again sometime. Good afternoon. Thank you.